this evening's scripture reading. It's 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 14. For we know that if our earthly house is tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed we have been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For when we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but, because, but further clothed, that morality may be swallowed up in life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are present from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make in our aim, whether present or absence, to be well-pleasing to, to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known to your consciences. For we do not commit ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, or if we are sound minded, it is for you. For the love of God, Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. Appreciate your being here tonight, and I really appreciate the invitation to stand before you this evening and share a little something with you from the writings of the Apostle Paul, and hopefully something that will encourage us and help us as we endeavor to serve our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to thank the brother who lifted up my name tonight in prayer. I I'm always humbled that my brethren would mention my name before the throne of heaven, and I am particularly mindful of that over the last several months, how you and so many others have been praying for our family, and I appreciate that, that you have prayed for them, you've prayed for our new grandson, and I know you will continue to do so. It means so much to us that so many brethren, many of whom we do not even know, have made it possible for us to have this child in our family. 2 Corinthians is predominantly, I suppose it's correct to say that, Paul's second attempt with the Corinthians to establish his credentials, his bona fides, if you please, as an apostle of Jesus Christ. 
He had done so somewhat in the first letter, but in this second letter, he early on begins in that way. In chapter 3, he opens up with an assertion that he, as well as the other apostles, have been given a special ministry whereby it was their call from God to bear witness to Christ and to reveal the gospel. And he continues with that in chapter 4 saying that he and the others had renounced everything in order to deliver to the world the gospel and to preach Christ. I don't believe that Paul is angry when he says these things, but I do believe he is concerned that brethren do not properly understand the motivation that he and the other apostles and inspired men had in their dedication to Christ and their delivering of the truth. Paul and the uh, other apostles suffered many things at the hands of their enemies, false brethren, the Jews, men of the world who hated the gospel, and they suffered. But he was encouraged in his ministry because he was confident of the reward. And this is how chapter 5 began tonight with his speaking to the resurrection from the dead. This was his motivation. This was his great impetus in many ways to pursue the work that he did. However, it wasn't just a matter of reward with Paul and that's why we continue to read through verse 14 which will be the text that we will focus on tonight because Paul had been accused by some of being insane. And he says, well, if we're insane, it's because we're serving God. And if we're sober-minded, and that's really a kind of a twist on what's being argued here. Evidently, it was some among the Corinthians who thought Paul was just really over the top in his dedication and the first letter bears out why, because they were not as committed to Christ as they ought to have been. And so they were critical of Paul, but he says, if we're not insane, it is for your sakes. But why, Paul? Why go to all this trouble for the Corinthians? And so he says in verse 14, for the love of Christ constrains or compels us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. Why have we done this? Because of the love of Christ. And in that love, Christ has revealed to us the need. Because he died for all, then what does that say? All were dead. Granted, they're physically dead or they're going to die, but he says they are dead. And he's talking about their being dead in trespasses and sin. They're lost. They're undone. They're destined to eternal ruin. And so Paul and the twelve labored as they did. And they endured all the things which they endured. And 2 Corinthians chapter 11 is, <clears throat> excuse me, 1 Corinthians, no, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I'm right, is the passage that helps us understand that the things that he suffered and that others suffered. 
But why? Because Christ died for all. And when he defines love, he expounds upon it in these simple words. Christ died for all. That word constrained or compelled, as we read a moment ago in that other version, means to press in on every side. It's like a straight, an S-T-R-A-I-T, which forces a ship into a very narrow channel or something with which we ought to be familiar with. I was, as a boy, spending my summers in western Oklahoma and then living in Amarillo for 16 years as we did, and I'm sure some of you are, a cattle squeeze. You know what a cattle squeeze does. It holds the cow or the bull in place until it can be managed, either vaccinated or whatever necessity is being performed upon the animal so he can't move and hurt himself or hurt others. And so the idea of being constrained is to hold completely. And metaphorically then it means to urge or to impel. And this is exactly how Paul is using the word in this text. But so many fail to understand what he means by being constrained or being compelled. The prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 31 in verse 3, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn thee. Jesus in John 6 said that when he was lifted up, he would draw all men unto himself. But how would he draw all men unto himself? It would have been through the preaching of the gospel. John 6, 44 and 45. Men are impelled, men are drawn to Christ, men are urged to Christ by his love. One man has wisely said that love is like no other force. Love will receive as a gift what no human power can take against the will. Love is that which gives and forgives. Love is that which suffers and forbears. Love is a power, but it doesn't make us act against our will. The gospel is designed to appeal to man. It is revealed, and that was the whole point that Paul's making about the revelation of the gospel beginning there in chapter 3. It is revealed to man. It is designed to appeal to man in such a way as to draw him to God, but not to force him to God. I think of it kind of like a magnet and a nail. A magnet is, will draw an iron object toward it. But a magnet will not react with aluminum. A magnet will not react with the coins that we carry in our pocket, copper or silver or the other alloy coins that we may have. Why? Because it's not in the nature of those metals to be magnetized. The magnet is, draws the nail but not against its will, not contrary to its nature. Why? Because it's made that way. It's intended by God to be drawn 
by the magnet. Likewise, men are intended by God to be drawn by the gospel. The significant difference being that they can resist. They can refuse to come. We just sang a moment ago the wonderful story of love. That's what the gospel is. It is a story of the love of Christ. And so it is that John says, Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. And God commendeth his love toward us, Paul says in Romans 5. While we were yet sinners, how so? Because Christ died for us. Well, how is it then that the love of God revealed in the gospel appeals to men? And I want to talk about several of the particular characteristics of the love of God that draws men to him. First of all, let me suggest to you that the love of God is an eternal love. Turn in your New Testament to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Paul says, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Through the preaching of the gospel, men are drawn to Christ. That's what Jesus said in John 6. It is the revelation of the purpose and intent of God in his death upon the cross that he draws all men unto himself. But when did God purpose that that should be done? Did God wait until we broke the world to have a plan? No. God had a plan from before the foundation of the world. God had a plan before Adam and Eve were created. God had a plan that included the death of Jesus upon the cross of Calvary for Adam and for Eve and for all men since then and for you and for me from before the foundation of the world. God loved you before you even were. In John chapter 3 and verse 16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now that eternal plan required the death of God's son. So when we read passages like Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, we need to understand that this was not some whim of the Almighty. This was not some afterthought because things didn't go like he originally intended. Rather, this is God's purpose and plan. Paul says, For by him are all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him, and get it, and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Paul said from before the foundation of the world, God had a plan and a purpose in place for mankind. 
And that plan and that purpose involved the death of his son from before the world began, from eternity past, if we can use that language, we can from our perspective. And so that plan involved Christ. And when God sent Christ as the Word to create the heavens and the earth, as John 1 teaches us, Christ was creating those things, knowing, now get this, knowing that he was creating those things that would eventually result in his own death upon the cross. And so they were created by him and for him. For him in the sense that they would ultimately result in the glory of God and the Son. But how was that glory to come? John 12, the voice from heaven, which was the Father speaking to Christ, said, I have glorified it, that is, I have glorified my name, and I will glorify it again. But how would that be? That same context I mentioned a moment ago in John 12. When, I, when the Son of Man is lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. God created and purposed and planned in order that you might be saved. But not only is it a story of eternal love, it is a story of unconditional love. Turn back to the book of Romans, if you will. Chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. The Apostle Paul writes, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were yet without strength, Adam and Eve, they broke it through sin and the help of the devil. And every man has followed in their footsteps, and that's the argument that Paul is making here in Romans 5 and the verses that follow. That sin has been in the world since Adam, even though not all men sinned after the similitude of Adam. And the difference being that Adam sinned with his eyes wide open. Because Paul says Adam was not deceived, whereas Eve was. And so we've all followed in the path of Adam. We have sinned, and so all die because all have sinned, Romans 5. And yet when we were in that condition, Christ willingly, lovingly, freely came into the world and died for us. He died for us without anything, or without any consideration of anything that you or I may have done whereby we might be worthy of his love. You see, his love is not conditioned upon anything that is good or lovely or righteous in us. Jesus loved us when we were in rebellion. Jesus loved us when we were in sin. He loved me when I did not love him. 1 John chapter 4, please, and verse 10. John says, herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us 
and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now the remarkableness of that is expressed in these verses. Paul says, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. That's a man who cannot be rightfully judged as being guilty of sin. A blameless man. Then he says, peradventure, for a good man, some would even dare to die. That is, for a man who goes beyond what is required. A man who is loving and kind and generous and, and demonstrates more than what the law requires. Some might consider dying for him. Now notice the contrast. Here's who you and I might take under advisement as being meritorious of our consideration to die. But look who Christ died for. And remember, that's you and that's me. Christ died for the ungodly. So the love of God, the love of Christ is an eternal love. It is an unconditional love. And let me tell you, it is a personal love. I think we sometimes forget this. I've tried to figure out why, and I've concluded that somehow there is some kind of amelioration of guilt when we think of ourselves as the world for whom Christ died. But when Paul talks about the death of Jesus in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, he says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We're never really going to get this discipleship thing until we can personalize the death of Jesus. Stop looking at everybody else. Christ died for you, Christ died for you, Christ died for you. And then like the old Pharisee, I'm glad I'm not like these other fellas. And then Christ died for me. They really needed it. I didn't need it so much. Is that how we think? That's not how Paul thought. Paul said, Christ died for me. And what did Paul say about himself? I was the chief of sinners. I persecuted the church of God. I gave testimony and voiced my vote against them that they might be put to death. Yet Christ died for me. Well, someone says, no, I never persecuted the church. Well, I believe Paul gives a pretty good description of the rest of us over in Titus chapter 3. In verse 5, he says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Well, who is the us in that passage? We've read that passage so many times as a proof text for water baptism, which it is. But who's the us? Who's Paul talking about in that passage? Verse 3. Himself and everybody else. He says, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, 
hateful and hating one another. That's us. That's who we are. That's who we're saved by the washing of regeneration through the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ that comes through the cross. I need to recognize, had I been the only one, Christ would have died for me. Eternal love, unconditional love, personal love, and let me suggest to you, it is a sacrificial love. That word sacrifice, that's another one we tend to, to water down. We think of a sacrifice as foregoing an entertainment or foregoing some pleasure or being interrupted in the doing of our daily routine. But the word sacrifice has a religious connotation. And it cannot properly be understood in the New Testament without the Old Testament background. Sacrifices were for the purpose of atonement. And so there was the whole burnt offering, and there was the sin offering, and the thank offering, and all these other offerings that were made over the course of a day, a month, and a year. And so every day, Jews were bringing burnt offerings and sacrifice, uh, sin offerings and thank offerings. And this blood was being poured out at the altar there in the temple or the tabernacle. Every morning, there was the sacrifice of a lamb. And every evening, there was the sacrifice of another. And that occurred every day, not for just one, but for hundreds and even thousands of Jews. And then three times a year, they all came to Jerusalem and they did it again. And read about the dedication of the temple or the Passover that was reinstituted under Hezekiah. And read about not just the dozens, not just the hundreds, but the thousands of animals whose blood was shed in order to make atonement for Israel. And that went on every year at Pentecost and Tabernacles, just as it had taken place at Passover. All of these continual daily, monthly, annual sacrifices that were offered. But not just that, it went on for decades, for centuries, for millennia. And then Christ came. And Christ is said, or it's said of his blood in the book of Hebrews, speaking of the blood of bulls and goats, verse, chapter 10, verse 1, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of things, can never, with those sacrifices, those daily, weekly, monthly, annual sacrifices offered over millennia, which they offered year by year continually, make the comers therein too perfect, for then would they not have ceased to be offered? And that's a question. Because the worshipers, once purged, would have had no more conscience of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. And that 
verse there, verse 3, is a referral or a reference to the Day of Atonement, which occurred in the seventh month, which was the sabbatical month. And so after they had offered all these sacrifices around for a year because tabernacles occurred in that month. And so that sabbatical month marked another season. The religious year began in Adar, and then in the seventh month, the, the sabbatical month, the legal calendar started. And so that went on every year, cycling over. But in that seventh month was the Day of Atonement. And after all these sacrifices had been offered for an entire year, then there's one more national sacrifice that was offered. And the priest came out and he laid his hands on the atonement, the Lord of the goat, and there was the scapegoat. There was two, you know. And the Lord's goat was killed. And his blood was sprinkled. But the other goat, the scapegoat, he was led off into a far place by a good man as an emblem of their sins being carried away. And then what happened? It all started over again. There is a remembrance of again made. That was the purpose of the Day of Atonement. That's why Paul could say there must, that the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. Why? Because this cycle kept going on and on and on and on and on and on. And then Jesus came. And Daniel said that in the middle of the week the Messiah would be cut off. And one of the reasons the Messiah would be cut off is that the sacrifice and atonement for sin could be completed. When Jesus came, all things fell into place. Forgiveness, atonement was provided. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 5 and verse 2, that we are to walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling Savior. Jesus just wasn't inconvenienced. Jesus wasn't just required to interrupt his divine existence in heaven. Jesus sacrificed something. And what Jesus sacrificed was his life. And what he experienced in that was all of the Grief and the remorse and the fear and the angst and the agony, and you just pick another adjective and stick it in there, that goes with dying. And Jesus did that. And when he cried out, it is finished, God said, it is enough. I'm satisfied. So love's greatness, we know, is measured in the terms of what he gives. What did Jesus give? For our sakes, he who was rich made himself poor. He emptied himself. And Paul says of him that in doing so, he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And I sometimes think we don't put enough emphasis on that reality 
obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You see, Jesus did that because he loved us, because he wanted to, not because God made him do it or forced him to do it. But you see, that's what love does. Love compels us to be obedient. Eternal love, unconditional love, personal love, sacrificial love. And then this Jesus who walked through the valley of the shadow of death and climbed up Calvary's hill reveals to us a story of forgiving love. Jeremy read it a moment ago, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5, where we are spoken of as having been washed white in the blood of the Lamb. You know, Jesus died between two thieves. In doing so, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I preached a sermon not so very long ago about anger. And I used it as a text in defining anger and showing what these feelings of ill will and intense displeasure, how these feelings are supposed to be how we are to respond to those. And in Mark chapter 3, the Bible says in verse 5, speaking of Jesus, that when he looked around about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their heart. What is the response that you and I should issue force with when we become angry or when we are made angry. We should look upon those who are making us angry and we need to have compassion upon them. Now, the reason I bring that up is because this passage says that Jesus, as he was being nailed to the cross, the nails driven in his hands and his feet, and as he was hoisted up between heaven and earth, tell me if you don't think he was angry. I can't imagine any human being having nails driven in his hands, in his feet, not having feelings of intense displeasure. But how did the Lord respond? Out of that anger, he found compassion. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And while he hung there, those two thieves together, they ganged up on him. If you'll read all the parallel passages, you'll know that I'm telling you the truth here. Those two thieves ganged up on him, and they began to hurl accusations against him. And then finally, because Jesus was demonstrating this compassion, one of them was smitten in his conscience. And he said, Lord... Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And what did Jesus say? Did Jesus say, no, you can go to hell? Is that what Jesus said? No, Jesus in love and compassion turned to that man and said, this day you will be with me in paradise. It was a forgiving love. Going back to our text in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm looking at verse 18 now, 
And Paul says that all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given us the ministry of reconciliation. The character of the kingdom citizen is compassion, forgiveness. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for the, theirs is the kingdom of God, or they shall see the kingdom of heaven. That's what we have to be. We have to be like Jesus. We have to be compassionate. And how is it that we show that compassion? Paul says it's through the ministry of reconciliation. We've been reconciled for what purpose? To serve reconciliation. And then finally, let me suggest to you that it is a story of enduring love. I turned 65 back in March. I was kidding with some of them earlier, but it's, it's the truth. I am officially a senior citizen. I got Medicare on the 1st of March. I turned 65 on the 27th of March. I went to the ophthalmologist a couple of weeks ago, and he says, those cataracts have got to come off. And that was bad enough. And then I went home that afternoon and fell down and split my head wide open and, and was bleeding like an, a hog. I said, man, I've, I've come full cycle now because the only thing I could think to say laying there in the road looking for my glasses and bleeding all over myself was, I've fallen and I can't get up. So I am officially a senior citizen. Life is hard. It's tough. That's not anything compared to what some people have to endure. What we all have to endure, the trials, the challenges, the disappointments, the death, the hardship, the sickness, the loneliness. And sometimes when we're all alone and we ought to be down on our knees praying, we have a little pity party and we wonder where Jesus is, why these things are happening to me. Well, we need to remember something. Jesus said, and Paul asked a series of five rhetorical questions there in Romans chapter 8, the last of which is, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? We spend too much time debating what that passage is not about, not enough time talking about what it is about. This is about Christians who are suffering. And what Paul is trying to convince them of, and he does that earlier in the chapter when he talks about the whole creation waiting for the redemption of the body, verse 23. He's talking about the resurrection. Don't you feel that way that sometimes you just want to go home and be with Jesus? That's what Paul said. It's more advantageous for you that I stay, but I'm in a twixt, but I'm, I'm betwixt two things. Dilemma. To die and be with Jesus, which is far better, or to remain with you. And so we get disappointed, and we get all turned around and turned inside out, and we have those moments of, of doubt and depression and longing, and we... 
don't know how to pray. And that's what verse 26 is about, those groanings. We have that mind of the Spirit. We want to go home to be with Jesus, but we don't know how to solve this problem. We don't know how to pray for this. And Jesus says, know this. There's not anyone or anything that will separate you from my love. Now, Jesus did not promise that everything was going to be great. He didn't promise you'd have a bed of roses. He didn't promise you weren't still going to have to go on and suffer and be lonely and face all of these things. But what he says is when that happens, know this. I love you. I died for you. I saved you from your sin. I want you to be with me in eternity. And so Paul just goes on, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just frankly, most of those I haven't had anything to do with. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. The point is, is that when these things come upon us, whatever it is, whatever difficulty, whatever trial, whatever misfortune that life may bring along, you know this, you will conquer that through Christ. Whatever it is, you're going to be with Jesus in glory if you keep the faith. For I am persuaded, he says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's not anything the world can do to you, say to you, or think about you that should cause you to believe that Jesus doesn't care about you. Why? Because Christ died for you. And if God's for us, who can be against us? You see, Christ is at the right hand of God making intercession for us. Paul says in Hebrews 7, he ever liveth to make intercession. And that's why John calls him in 1 John 2, our advocate, our pleader. That's why the Hebrew writer says that we can come boldly before the throne of grace. There's never a moment or time or circumstance or difficulty in life that means we can't ask God to help us. And our problem is, is that we don't ask. We don't meditate on what he's done. We don't linger on these scriptures that promise that he loves us. Eternal love, unconditional love, personal love, sacrificial love, forgiving love, enduring love. Does the love of Christ constrain you tonight? If so, come and stand right now while we sing.